It's the legacy of rape culture. Hello and welcome back to Legacy of Rape Culture. I am your host, Tia. And today we have an exciting episode. Yes, I say that about every episode, but they're all exciting. Today we are talking about an article that my guest wrote about the 1995 movie Kids. Full disclosure, I've never seen it. Does look interesting. Highly recommend checking it out. I will link the trailer in the description. Conversation is important. We talk about a lot of great things. Let's get into it. Uh, welcome back to Legacy of Rape Culture. I am here with a fantastic guest. If you want to introduce yourself, my name is Dr. Indigo Willing. I am a sociologist, pronouns she, her, and I am also the co founder of an initiative called Consent is Rad, which focuses on conversations and education about consent in the skateboarding scene. And yeah, I've, I sort of write a bit about, you know, skateboarding and one of the articles I've written about is about rape culture. So thanks for inviting me. And it is super cool. Like I said, before we started recording, when I found your article, I got really excited because I haven't used or talked about this through this lens. And the article we're talking about is the film Kids 20 Years On. And do you want to explain like why you wrote about this article? The film Kids is, uh, you know, it's like a youth culture film. It's pretty iconic by Larry Clark, directed by him and written by Harmony Corrine, who are both sort of cult figures in cinema and possibly skateboarding and photography as well. And a lot of people have seen it. It's a depiction in 1995. It's fictional of um, some skateboarders in New York City. It cast real skateboarders in those roles and it's, Got this sort of, um, I don't know, sort of a a whole range of fictional scenarios about boys behaving really, you know, in predatory ways towards the girls that they know. So a lead character in that film, his fetish to sleep with virgins and he nicknames himself the Virgin Surgeon and his best friend Casper in the film, the character of Casper, is you know portrayed as a pretty nice guy to be honest and you you kind of back him and think that you know surely he'll learn lessons from his good mate and then at the end of the film there's two depictions of rape and so I'm sure you give content warning to your listeners and so one of them is the the character that we expect to be bad is with a girl and she sort of consents to start having sex with him but she's a virgin and she said this hurts can we stop no no and he persuades her coercively to keep going and says no come on you know you can do this like you know I know you can do this sort of language like convincing her that she should put up with the sex that she doesn't want because it hurts her and she's she's not into it so that's one sort of depiction of the lines being crossed with teenagers when they have sex so yes she consents to have sex at the beginning but it's not an enthusiastic yes throughout there during the sex she wants to stop And um, there's a lot of people that, you know, may not see that as rape because, you know, initially she said yes. And that's something that's really important for us to understand about consent and active consent and continuous. It has to be ongoing and people can take that consent away any time. So the second scene in that film is overt rape. So there's a character, a girl who passes out from alcohol and drugs and she's asleep on the couch And the character that we're meant to like the whole time in the movie, the good guy, 
rapes her. So, you know, he starts having sex with her while she's passed out. She sort of murmurs no, you know, and he says, oh, no, don't worry, it's me. It's Casper, your friend, as if that's going to change her mind. She's literally just struggling to even be conscious. And, yeah, he has, you know, he, he sexually assaults her. And at the end of the film, it shows him waking up in the morning and said, you know, my God, you know, what the fuck happened? And that's the end of the film. So it's a sort of a build-up of all these, you know, stories of how boys feel that women or girls, you know, objects, conquests, that they're entitled to their bodies. They don't think about the consequences of their actions. You know, you've got clear lines of raping somebody that's unconscious, so totally non-conceptual in any way, and yet you know, the character himself, it's quite a, quite a, it shows it in quite uh, graphic detail, convinces himself that it's okay because he knows her, that they're friends. And he sort of says, hey, no, no, it's me. As if, you know, having uh, familiarity is a yes. So really fictional, but graphic ways to look at how rape happens. And a really clear lesson, I think, for people to watch that, to really understand, you know, like this is in no way acceptable whatsoever. And also this, it sort of helps break the myth that good guys don't rape because, in, you know, in tight communities like skateboarding or any other community where you've got um, a whole lot of people that are friends and feel loyal to each other and like each other, you know, when one of their friends is accused of rape, it's a very hard thing to comprehend. Normally you'll hear things like, but he's such a great guy. You know, he's never done anything to me. You know, I really like him and, you know, I can't imagine him doing that. And, you know, they expect that rapists are these monsters that just jump out of the bush and, you know, um, are drooling or, you know, look like monsters. And that's not the case. You know, rapists can be very charming. They, they, they allow people to get close to them through that charm and through being likeable. Yeah, and I, I think also what was so compelling about the film is that the character, I think, himself thought he was a nice guy. You know, he may not have intended that night to go out and rape somebody, but the fact that he... He didn't think twice about raping somebody as an issue is something that you know, is really important to sort of analyse. I was very inspired um, to use my sociological studies to look at what was going on in that film and what we can learn from, you know, representations of rape. Yeah, and it I saw a lot of that in the trailer. I mean, the trailer is from, like you said, 1995. So it was a little chaotic, so you don't get the scope of what the movie is necessarily about or like those scenes but reading your article and gave me a better understanding of the movie and it is I do like movies like that because it does foster a conversation but I was watching the the 20th anniversary panel with I think there's like three actors or more and then the Larry and Harmony were on the panel as well and Leo Fitzpatrick, who I believe plays Tally, if yeah, I'm Tilly. Tilly. Tilly's the one that likes virgins. Yes. And he, I guess he said like some people still, which this was in 2015, but people still came up to him and said that people, or they want to move to New York or they moved to New York because of this movie. And it was so inspiring to them. And he was <laughs> like, well, it's a cautionary tale, not necessarily real life so i i do appreciate yeah. that the video or the movie is there but also it scares me that people are taking this as like inspiration yeah yeah i think um chloe Sfigeli, maybe it's her name how you pronounce it uh the one that plays the rape victim at the very end who's passed out she says the same like people can't get past her as that character and when she meets people they're either really concerned like are you okay or you know they're really creepy about it 
you know, and she's really, you know, she's like, oh my gosh, you know, like that's that character and that scene is meant to be, you know, showing how awful rape is. And yet, you know, some people just think it's the best film ever. And, you know, it, it, it shows a really vibrant, fantastic culture, which is skateboarding. And it's a lot of, in the 90s culture, you know, the look hasn't changed much, you know, like the baseball hats and the baggy clothes and really there's a lot to like about skateboarding. It's it, it's portrayed as youthful, anti-authoritarian, not many rules. Uh, in this film there are literally no parents and all these kids look like they're under 16 or 16 and under. And it's a day in the life of a group of kids having fun together, right? But, you know, not the sort of wholesome version of having fun together. It's, you know, very uh, sort of, you know, gritty and realistic. You know, we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought that kids don't talk about sex, that kids maybe don't have sex. But, you know, who's the author or who's the influential people that are giving them some kind of, you know, moral guidelines about what to do with these impulses? And, yeah, you know, there, does, there doesn't seem to be many adults in this world in the film Kids, so... It really was a um, challenging film to watch. It's filmed really well. It's a cult classic. It's got, like, you know, a vibe to it. And yet, you know, it's also really uh, showing some of the, you know, bad sides of uh, how masculinity can be. So the characters as well, you like you like them, but at the same time you don't like them because they there's a scene where they bash up a gay person. There's homophobic slurs. It's probably racism, like, um, you know, give you an instance at the moment, but it's definitely, you know, problematic language and attitudes in that film that help you sort of unpack masculinity. And the skateboarders themselves in that film said, you know, this wasn't our reality and that, you know, the girls in our crew were really chill and that it's a fictional depiction. So we need to understand the difference between the representation of skateboarders in this film and what their lives were. They were just recruited. And we also need to question, I guess, you know, like, it was said that, you know, this film wouldn't be made today because, the you know, the scenes are quite graphic. And it was produced by Harvey Weinstein, who said it was the most controversial film he ever produced. So if that isn't saying something, I don't know what is. So we need to see it as a piece of history that, you know, probably wouldn't be made now, but there's a lot we can do positively looking at it now in terms of, you know, having those hard conversations about rape. If you watch how Telly's trying to convince the character by um, Rosia Dawson you know, have sex and ask kids, you know, is this consent? You know, is this rape? You know, these are important questions to ask. And same of when, you know, the, the girls pass out, like, well, what, you know, what's the right thing to do in this situation? You know, like, what what should he have done? Like, what should we do now after that? So one of the ways that I analyse the film is not looking at rape as something that men or boys inherently do. I argue that all genders can do sexual abuse, harassment and assault as well, so that's really important to understand. And I focus on, because I'm a sociologist, the social influences on why people rape. And there are a lot of researchers that argue that rape isn't like some biological impulse that you can't control. It's about power and it's about entitlement and it's about your attitudes towards something else or somebody else. So if you're looking at another person and you respect them and you respect their boundaries or you feel there are like, you know, consequences for behaving badly, that, in, that impacts on how you behave with them, Right. So what it's really worrying is when we see instances of rape culture is what is allowing people to think that they can take control over other people in this way? What is it about society and the culture that these people are in or that we're holding up or not sort of saying anything about that makes people feel they're entitled to do what they want with somebody that's passed out? So really an, an occasion for many deep questions. Yeah, and when I was watching the, the 20th anniversary panel, Harmony made the comment, 
like you said, uh, this would not be a film made today. And then he went on to say, which I don't understand this reference, so maybe you can shed light on it. She would not just, or she would have just called him on the phone. No one gets lost in movies these days because of GPA, GPS. And it was interesting that is what he took away, that that's the reason why he it wouldn't be made today, not because of the scenes or the impiction of the rape, um, but it was because of GPS and that she would have just called him. Yeah. Well, that, that's a narrative device that he's talking about, in a sense, for the film. she She's a virgin and Telly likes to sleep with virgins, so um, Telly is the first person that the girl that's raped is, um, you know, what happens is she gets HIV and so she's looking for Telly. The, the narrative follows her looking for Telly to try and tell him that she's got HIV and because that's the only person she slept with, you know, that's why she needs to tell him. And so it sort of follows the, the boys and their friends going around New York City for the day and her trying to find him and eventually she finds him at a party and because she's been at a club and somebody slips something in a drink, she passes out. So I guess that's what Harmony Korine means. He has talked about various other things about how controversial the film is and it wouldn't be made today. But, you know, I think there's um, a lot of really interesting conversations about kids that will eventually come from the women in the cast and how they feel about that now and, you know, sort of spotlighting how they understand the problem. And, yeah. <laughs> Another thing that's been great around this time, so it, uh, the article came out on the 25th anniversary of Kids where it's almost what quarter of a century has passed and or half a century or something, I don't know. Quarter of a century has passed and you think the attitudes have changed. Like this is 1995, surely we wouldn't have these issues anymore and we've had so many different feminist, you know, interventions and so many consent campaigns are out there and yet, yes, this is still something that is an issue and skateboarding isn't inherently a place where you'll find rape. you find rape in football scenes you'll find it in colleges you'll find it in you know your top corporations in your fortune 100s or whatever you know rape isn't something that just skateboarders do I think what I want to emphasize is that given that skateboarders are so free of rules and structures they might actually be able to call it out faster and do something more proactive than some of the bigger structures you know a lot of institutions like camp college campuses are afraid to call out rape because, you know, it pushes them into all sorts of PR problems and a lot of it's just damage control rather than helping the victims and survivors. Skateboarding has um, less of that. It's not that it isn't affected by that. Companies are afraid to lose Nike sponsorship or whatever they might have, you know, that might damage a team and their reputation if somebody is um, accused of something. But um, at the same time, they have less of that. (laughs) They have less rules, less structures. In a sense, uh, skateboarding will go on with or without rules and regulations and so just looking at ways that skateboarders call out rape culture is really interesting so one of the things that I am part of is I'm a co-founder of a group called Consent is Rad I'm the facilitator of that and we launched it at a skateboarding conference in Malmo in Sweden in 2019 it's a big conference for skateboarders it's the only one and it has pro skateboarders industry brand managers skate journalists skateboarders from all different kinds of backgrounds coaches that teach kids skateboarding a very great audience to introduce the concept of consent and try and get support for that. And uh, within those two years, we've received so much on the ground grassroots support. So um, this month, sorry, in June, we'll have a full page ad in Thrasher magazine about rape culture. So Consent is Red has collaborated with a few different types of people. 
But the most recent one is our campaign, Breaking the Cycle and Rape Culture and Skateboarding. And if you had told me when I first started skateboarding, it was a very much a culture there, pretty much like kids in some ways, but you no, know, not as hectic, but still hectic. If you told me that we could have been discussing rape culture and had a full page story in Thrasher magazine about it, I wouldn't have believed you. So it's showing you that when something is brought to the attention of skateboarding, and particularly at this moment in time, there is momentum behind that, there is support, and there's a, there are people that will listen and try and spread that message. So it's very encouraging. Which is awesome. And when I, there's a sentence in your article that has stuck with me. And I, I, now I think I know why. And it's Tilly and his friends are shown to inhabit the world without parents or adults, where violence and heteronormative, hegemonic masculinity is centered and where sex is explicitly portrayed as something boys can achieve. And I think it's partly because my work started on a college campus. So if I would have like read that about like college culture or like a college scene today, I would have been like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's, it's pretty much accurate. And like you said, colleges don't talk about it because it is a PR thing. And I am very appreciative that the skate community has taken a listen to your organization and your, your message, but it is true. I think a lot of these type of talks are pushed down or changed in favor of the way it looks or the way that money's going to come in or any of those things that do not help the survivor and the victim. So it's really cool to see that the skate community is like, yeah, no, this is cool. Let's do this and let's talk about this. It's it's also trial and error. Like we're learning as we go along and There's plenty we can learn from campaigns, anti-sexual violence campaigns that many people have done outside of skateboarding. But as we know, these needs constant work and we need to be constantly innovating and tailoring to the communities that we're um, involved in. So I think one of the things that's really lacking in consent and sexual violence research and in communities is this sort of, you know, bystander and what to do when somebody in your crew or a good friend or a teammate is accused of rape because a lot of people feel very loyal and feel very, they go through quite a big process of even, you know, comprehending that and how to, you know, best support the victim, the survivor, like how, you know, what's a really not to do kind of thing, <laughs> what's something practical that you can do. We have some resources on the Consent is Rad website that we're trying to build up, you know, and one includes like what to do when your best friend's accused of rape. Like these are the type of questions that have to go alongside looking at the problem in itself. So one of the things I write about in that article about kids is that theorists have argued that the problem with rapes in movies is that it treats it as a singular event and a spectacular event. It builds up, you see the victim, you see the rape, you obviously meant to feel all the things that you feel. You feel disgusted, you know, you feel moral issues and so on. But researchers argue that rape's an ongoing event. <laughs> it doesn't stop at the rape. There's a whole world after that, and particularly for the victim, but also like a ripple effect of the social world around them and people and social circles around them too. It's like an ongoing process that needs attention, support, and so on. So too often we just treat the rape in itself as a as the the issue, as opposed to what happens when somebody is raped across their life course. Yeah, you know, in the weeks after, in the months after, years after, and anniversaries after. You know, what kind of changes can they see? 
what kind, what kind of changes do happen? Like a, a year after, if you've experienced rape, what does it look like a year after if you've taken some kind of action, whether it's restorative justice, transformative justice, punitive ways, you know, like these are the sort of questions as well that really I think we all need to consider. Like how does how do we how do we deal with this as a society rather than just the event itself and thinking that there are neat answers to how we deal with that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I think that's where like a lot of my work lies because I usually the education stuff that I do is before the rape, the pre- preventative stuff or it's working with victims and survivors after, but it's not very much portrayed in what we see in movies. And I think the only one that comes to mind is like 13 Reasons Why, which there's obviously problematic stuff in that movie or that show too, but it does show survivors after the fact of the the rape. But yeah, it would be interesting to have those like conversations and have those dialogues being readily available in film yeah people need to see what it looks like what they look like you know there's a very famous it's not famous overseas but there's a famous australian film called shame about a small town and it could happen in texas it could happen in arizona it could happen in minnesota anyway it doesn't have to be australia where in this small town the boys go out in gangs and they rape the local girls and what's interesting is that they show how the town puts up with that and keeps silent about it because these are like the favorite sons sons of the mayor sons of the policemen, that kind of thing. And in one scene, the victim is sitting next to the mother. He says, you know, look, he's a good boy. Um, We don't want to talk about these things. Would some money help you? Would you like to buy something nice to wear? Or how would you like a holiday? (laughs) She thinks that she's actually doing something productive about the rape without, you know, convicting her son. And that's just astounding. And yet at the same time, you know, you, you know that there are like rich parents probably in Yale offering these things to people to shut up. You know, that film was an old film and it's still an issue. And people need to see that. The, you know, they need to see bad behaviours in response to rape as well as uh, role models and what to do so that they really recognise, uh-oh, you know, like am I, um, you know, victim-blaming? Am I enabling? Am I complicit? Like, you know, because <laughs> we, we don't have much training in this. You know, we know what's right and wrong, but we don't actually have scripts and examples and case studies and scenarios to to really see how bad it can get and how, you know, improved we can be. So I, I do like the future of how cinema might help us, you know, look at these things. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, I'm trying to think of all the, uh, that remind the, sh- the movie you were just talking about, it was called Shame, which yeah, I'm shame. gonna try to look that up <laughs> after this call. It reminds me of Red, what was it called? Red Road, Red or something like that. It was a documentary in a small town and it was a, f- football players they didn't go out and rape all the time but it was just a localized um, event and and that kind of showed what happens after and accountability but I think that's kind of like you said we don't teach what happens after we don't teach about the effects of the trauma that's in in, that people face secondary trauma and all that stuff and Mm -hmm. I am very appreciative of how much film can be an advocate in this realm because like you said it could show what that is and how it is without necessarily making survivors victims having to be the voices of it it could be actors doing it (laughs) the emotional labor that's expected of of victims and the people most likely to be 
So, you know, we know that women and non-binary people are the most likely to be doing all this labour of talking about, you know, this. And yes, there are allies, but, you know, how much work are they doing and how are they doing it? And just giving us a stage isn't always enough, right? You need to say, well, you know, like, um, you know, what are the trigger warnings? Have you got, like, you know, if you're NBC doing this big expose on a football team that's done something wrong, for the victims, you know, are you going to offer uh, counselling services, funding for counselling for that person that you interview afterwards? Because they're telling their story to the United States of America now, not just like it's hard enough one-on-one to a counsellor or to, I don't know, a police officer, whoever they tell it to. Now they're telling it to. So I think, yeah, like the fictionalised of these things helps us think through things that are put less labour and obviously uh, first-hand trauma on people. You know, and as, as well as that, I think... Like um, at the moment, I have this guy in one of my local skate parks who said something really inappropriate to me. And when my friend tried to call him out, he blamed me and said, you know, well, she had so much cleavage showing, you went there. And he's like, what's that got to do with anything? Don't look like you pervert kind of thing. And then he said, oh, you know, she had more cleavage showing than the roller skaters, which was even worse, like because the roller skaters do wear clothes that make them feel comfortable. We li- I live in a tropical place, so... It's sort of ironic that the the men will skateboard without shirts and not say anything to each other. But if a if a girl or a woman wears a bikini top or a tank top and shorts, you know, it's like oh, she wants attention. She's asking for it, like all that kind of thing. And it's it's classic victim blaming. Anyway, so there was a bit of a you know a bit of an argument over. I'm very proud of the men skateboarders that stood up to me and messaged him and said, you know, like what the hell? <laughs> you need to apologize. And he wasn't apologetic at all. And he's just blaming me for having a chest with, you know, breasts on it. <laughs> it's like I don't take these off. They're here all the time. Anyway, that in itself was was bad, but I also I didn't tell anyone to do anything to him. I said, like, you know, he's he's clearly got issues and he will always skateboard. So you know, rather than banning him from the local skate park where I skate, it's better we know where he is. And if we can get him any help and educate him some way, that's going to probably be the best. Otherwise, banish him is going to go to some other skate park where people don't know what he's like. A whole bunch of new girls have to put up with him. And he has been a big problem to the local girls at my skate park. So, you know, he's, um, he's spat at them and um, people have called the police and he's fought the police. He's, he's very has no regrets about his behaviour towards women and the types of things that he says to them. In a sense, it's better that I know where he is and that other people do, but at the same time, I have to turn up into that space and share it with him, right? When I do, most of the community knows what he's like. You know, I always have my friends with me. You know, he's on one side of the park, I'm on the other. It's very uncomfortable, but this is the reality as well, what happens after we're sexually harassed in some way, or even worse, you know, if we're sexually assaulted, is that these people don't always disappear and go away. Not like there's a magic thing that goes whoosh, you know, they're, they're either cured or whatever or they we never see them again. Often we'll have to work with them every day. We'll have to, they might be, a, you know, they might be promoted in our workplace. In college we know that they might become promoted to be professor. Yeah, we really need to also think about, well, what can our friends do for us? You know, literally my friends have gone through everything they could possibly do. So confronting that person, trying to get them to apologise, telling everybody what he's like always making sure that they keep an eye on him when he's around, you know, and then there's there's other things that could be taken forward from that, but we're learning as we go. I think we just need to understand as well that these things aren't fixed easily. Yeah, that's very, very true. And I think it is kind of forgotten that aspect. I know I've spoken at a couple conferences uh, with 
administration and with just my peers. And I I don't like to say that some of the people like have like this kind of like God savior complex, but it kind of feels like that. They're like, well, if we do this, 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 it'll be solved. It's not that easy. And you're coming into this, this work without being a victim slash survivor or even talking to them. So you don't necessarily know what they need. Yeah. So it's very cool that your friends are also trying to hold him accountable, even though he's clearly not listening. Yeah. 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 He's a, he's a really great, um, not great. He's, he's just a, a very clear um, example though, of like, you know, people that consent education isn't for him. He, we're not going to educate him. We're going to educate the other people in the park so that they, they move him on when he is being offensive to people. They know how to talk to the other girls about him. They know how to step in and be good allies. Like that's who the consent education is for. Not he, you know, you can talk him all day. He won't understand it. He won't agree with it. He's, you know, he's got a he's got a traits that I don't think a consent campaign's gonna help. But he's one person and the skate park's filled usually with 30 other dudes. What are the other 30, 30 other dudes gonna do? They need to know what to do in some ways. Like, you know, they can't go around bashing them up all the time. That's just not practical either. Calling the police won't do much for, you know, a certain amount of time. He's back out again and he's back in that same space. So that is one way, pathway to justice that people can choose, but I'm just saying that not everybody will choose that either because we know that it's very difficult for people to take those routes and it normally blames the victim as well. So, yeah, <laughs> we need to have a community strategy for when these things happen if we're in communities where this happens as well. Yeah, and I, it makes me think about, I guess I never thought about it through this lens of, because I think a lot of, in this situation, a lot of people would be like, okay, let's target this guy. Let's put all the like education towards him. But you're losing that opportunity to teach 30 other people what to do. And I think we forget that aspect of like the bystander training is very effective because there's a, I used to know statistics on this, but the by, bystander effect is if you know about, or if you were taught about like what to do as a bystander, it goes up, I don't know the percentage, but it goes up to being actually will step in. And so I think that is very important to think about. And now my head is just filled with a bunch of ideas because I never thought about that aspect because I think I was in that that class of, okay, well, we need to teach him to be better. But like you said, it's not going to do anything, but it could help the community as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah, the strategies, you know, learning as you go. If there are answers, they would have been dealing with this, you know, nobody just waits around for the perfect answer to deal with rape culture. We would have been doing for ages. It's clearly just that complex and that taboo and it's been that uh, under-resourced for so long that we're still struggling with it now. So every effort counts. (laughs) Right. That is very true. And so I used to like try to skateboard when I was younger, but I never went to the skate park. So I don't know anything about like the skate community, but you say you go to the same skate park every time. So it it is really like everyone, I mean, I'm assuming new people come once in a while, but it is a community you are creating. Is that a norm for all skateboarders? Um, because skateboarding relies on particular architecture and the most, most of the skateboarders will skate in the streets but increasingly the streets are very hostile towards skaters with skate stoppers and security will move you on. If you just want to practice and want somewhere to hang, some of the time skate parks offer that function. 
So you either go there to practice your tricks or it's a meeting point before you go somewhere else. And there are literally a limited amount of skate parks in any city. So in New York, you might be lucky. You might have, you know, 10 or something. But in smaller places like, you know, you can imagine a lot of small towns <laughs> across the Midwest or south or wherever, you know, you might have one skate park for the whole community. And that's the only place you can literally practice particular tricks that you are obsessed about, that you love, that you've got to practice. You know, skateboarding is a very hard thing to do. You need to practice. And it has some unique architectural features like skate bowls that, you know, you can't just go find a skate bowl and then have a fight with somebody and move to the next skate bowl. You literally might only have one in your whole town, at best maybe 10. So you you will run into each other all the time. So this is why the community needs to take care of itself and take care of business when there are issues because, yeah, (laughs) the problem doesn't go away. The problem stays right there. Yeah, I'm thinking I live in a town that's like 6,000 people and we have a skate park. Um, I use quotation marks because it's one ramp and those things that you, like a, I don't know what it's called, a grinder, the, the, whatever those are called. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So So they have, that's what they have is one ramp and that. So I, it is a skate park, but not really. I don't know of any bowls around me. So yeah, if they wanted to practice, they would have to. If they wanted to practice a ramp, that would be the place they would go. And normally, again, there's only like maybe two skate shops per city, or maybe if you're lucky, you get more. But again, you want to go get your skateboard. Imagine if that person that works in the skate shop is an abuser. You know, you're going to have to get everything online. <laughs> you know, like it's such a small community, even though it's a global community and you can go online and meet people and stuff, like the physical aspects of it makes things very immediate. In some ways that's great because you feel a sense of family and in other ways it can be really complicated when somebody's very problematic or there's bullying and it's not the type of sport that, you know, it's very individualistic. It sort of values freedom and it's, you know, it's a cool sport. <laughs> so it's a cool thing to do. It's a, It engulfs your lifestyle. You know, you don't just skateboard. Like skateboarders are often flatmates. They work in the same shop. They'll be in a band together. They'll design things together. Whereas, you know, if you're a runner, if you're like an Olympic rower, literally you just do that rowing and then you have the rest of your life and you don't hang out with other rowers in a band. You know, I've never heard of like a rowing team having a band. But skateboarding, that's natural. They'll write a magazine together. So very, very enmeshed, uh, entangled community. And it can either look after itself or it can be a total mess. I think it's cleaning house at the moment. So it's really good. Yeah. And that is really cool. And I know during Leo Fitzpatrick made the comment that he went back to working at a shop after the film and he would get phone calls, like death threats and people did not like his his character. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he actually had to convince people that that's not him. And it took a mental toll and... You know, these days, like, they have argued about the ethics of using such a young cast and how they looked after them or did not look after them after that as well. Like, you've got kids, minors, depicting graphic scenes of rape. So, um, yeah, there, there, there will be some sort of outfall from that. And I think, the yeah, we can learn a lot from that film about yes. what to do and what not yes. to do. And two of the characters, you know, are no longer with us. I think one um, took their life and um, the other one had an overdose from addiction and all sorts of uh, problems. We know that there's a foundation uh, set up for them. So, you know, we really want to like have duty of care when we work with people that are young in cinema. Yeah. And I think they mentioned, or I think you mentioned that some people were saying that 
this film was like or child pornography because of them being very young. Yeah, there's one of the accusations thrown at the film and that was one of them. Which I, I get to an extent and I get, it was a little jarring realizing that they were all under 18 and this was like a lot of them, if not all of them's first acting job. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that would be a lot for however, how old they were at the time being thrown into this. But I do appreciate that they were coming from the lens of being in the skateboarding community yeah, already. They're, they're, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of authenticity to the, their characters as skaters and that they are young people. And apparently the the scene on the set was encouraged, like they weren't, they weren't intimidated. It wasn't like Stanley Kubrick making them, you know, do things until they're in tears. But, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of responsibility and, you know, the, the scenes are quite graphic. The final rape scene goes on for quite a while and you feel very, very sickened by it. Right. And you talk about the gray area in the context of, obviously, the sexual encounters. Yeah. And I always get in arguments about the rape or the gray area because it's different for everyone. It's a very big conversation um, to have. But I think the way that you, I think you said that it, like, promotes critical thinking and not very many films, I think, do that. Or I know some people could take it the wrong way and it couldn't foster that conversation. But it, I think it, it is really cool that it does and it could be used as that. Like you said, if you're watching this with your kids or like teenagers and being like, okay, like, what do you think of this? What should he, what should he have done? What should he have done? Yeah. And having that conversation, I hope that parents would use films like this and not just be like, you're too young to know about this. Because in reality, the idea that a group of 16-year-olds are going around having these sexual encounters, hopefully not raping, but kissing or making out, that's the truth. <laughs> that's we're not just it's not something that is just a film thing. Yeah. It's happening. So having using that yeah. as a tool would be Oh yeah. So part of the research as well is that they showed that film kids to teenage skateboarders in Malmo in Sweden at Bregariat High School and I asked the principal for permission to get some feedback about what they thought about that film and they clearly saw it as fictional like they just thought you know, and they also saw it as a then and now like well that skateboarders of the 90s like you know these days skateboarders are much more you know, aware and uh, good citizens and so on. But at the same time, you know, one of them said, you know, this actually gives you an opportunity to talk about things that are taboo. And it wouldn't only be talked about, but it's really important. So I think that's, you know, something to take away a film like kids. Um, The other thing about the grey area, I mean, that's such a, that needs to be handled by experts much more uh, proficiently than I did. But it was something that as a literature reviewer, I, I felt useful to mention as well. And also the idea of this idea of good sex and bad sex and knowing your boundaries of your own body. Um, there's an expectation for for women to put up with bad sex. And it's and when they're asked, like in this research, well, what is bad sex to you? It's like, well, you know, uh, it hurts, it's uncomfortable, they don't want to do it, but they feel intimidated. There might be social consequences. They might be bullied if they, you know, say stop. person might not love them anymore, so some sort of emotional blackmail. Like there are various reasons that, Women want to say no, or girls want to say no, but they question themselves. And sort of knowing that actually, no, you don't, you shouldn't have to question yourself. If you don't want to do this sex, it hurts, it's uncomfortable, whatever it is, you said yes in the beginning, you've changed your mind, that's what stands, <laughs> you know. Consent can be taken away at any time. So that's something that's really important. With the bad sex and the study that they did of men, when they asked men, what do you think bad sex is? 
you know, they were more like, you know, um, it's it's either when they're they're bored or something, but also they felt like even if it was bad sex, they had to do it because they're not a real man if they don't continue having sex. For a man to turn down sex, that's not a real man. It's their job to, you know, do the deed and get the conquest and do all that. So there's some really bad behaviours and attitudes about what sex is, <laughs> which should be enjoyable and consensual out there that aren't, you know, that aren't sort of translating to when young people have sex or, you know, college-age people have sex. So that was a really interesting study that I mentioned in there and that covered that sort of grey area as well. You know, it's shocking that there's an attitude out there that men have to have sex even if they're doing it and they don't want to have sex anymore, that they have to do it. Like, it's no excuse for rape, but it's certainly a really problematic understanding of, you know, sex and masculinity for them. It's shocking. Yeah. And I I think, like, when I talk about rape culture, I get a lot of hate. I knew I was going to talking about this. And a lot of it is because, like, the men in my life or that I've done because I did a it's called slut shaming and rape culture it was a thing at my college that I did in my undergrad and a lot of the guys took away that um I was attacking them personally and I was like no I was like it affects you too negatively like if you don't want to have sex you don't need to and one guy's eyes just went like like I just told him that unicorns were real like I was like you this should not be so shocking to you you are 20 years old like it's, but yeah, you're right. It's, I'm very much appreciative that you made that comment because I don't think it's talked about enough. And I think it's just glazed over because rape culture comes from the lens of a white female, a white cis female. And as I am too. So I, I, I have the right to judge my own kind. <laughs> but it is true. I think we forget about the negative effects on men as well, especially. Teen right. movie, every all those mm-hmm. teenage movies from, you know, was it American Pie from like obviously from the 1980s, like Revenge of the Nerds and all these other horrible films that you'll see. But even as far as American Pie in 2004, 2009, they're still making these films where the lead characters have to go out and get laid, you know. Usually a woman that's not interested or a girl that's not interested and hunting her down and pursuing her until she says yes or filming, a, filming the chicks in the locker room and they don't know about it or the prom queens passed out, like, you know, now's your chance, boys. Like, really bad storylines that are there for humour. So in a sense, it could be satire, but satire has to have a point, <laughs> and it usually has to have a good point for it to work. And so these films are like, you know, they're one of the first type of films that, you know, teenage guys get to see, and so it, it really is like girls are conquest, go out and get her, be the man, have sex. Like, you know, it's really... In some ways, I'm I'm shocked that, you know, when guys say, what, I don't have to have sex, I don't have to get laid with this person, I don't have to tell my mates that I got laid. Like, you know, and the other, you look at the films and you think, well, they're so rewarded for that. And that's something else that I argue in kids as well. Like there's a reward system that goes on for, um, you know, being this sort of hegemonic masculinity where you're the winner, you're sexually powerful, you've got control over the ladies, you know, like so much sort of, um, yeah attitudes that are normalized and naturalized, but in the worst kind of ways. So, yeah. Yes, very much so. Uh, So I ask all my guests this last question. Do you have any last nuggets of gold to share with the audience? Firstly, if you have been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, it can feel like the most loneliest place ever. And it's really important to know that even the briefest look on the internet will show that you are not alone in what you've experienced 
there are other people that will be sharing their stories that will believe you. There'll be all kinds of resources that you can discreetly explore. There'll be helplines that sound intimidating, but really those people are just there to have a conversation with you and they're not there to push you into anything that you're not comfortable in doing. So virtually or physically don't get into that trap of thinking that you're the loneliest person in the world in this encounter because you're not. Secondly, for um, advice, those who do have the courage and the support to go forward, if they encounter if they encounter sexual harassment or they are a victim and survivor of anything, is to again, there are people out there that will want to back you. There are people that are just wanting to know what to do in a sense. So um, not everybody's going to be like the perfect ally or the perfect person to come and turn to, but people will be out there. They may not be even in the next room. They might be, you know, we're talking across oceans, but there are definitely people that can talk to you about what things you can do. And normally the things that are in the movies, unfortunately in the movies it's very dramatised and they have really neat solutions. It may not be that. It may not be as dramatic and spectacular and you may not be rescued by these wonderful heroes that we see in cinema and books. might be a bit more complicated, but it's definitely a process that is opening up for more and more people to join you. So I fully applaud anybody that speaks up about this and to know that your efforts really do help others. So every time I see somebody speak up about something that's happened to them and take on somebody has made me 10 times braver and 10 times more motivated to do the work that I do. And I'm sure that it does for many other people. So believe in your believe in your voice. And again, if you choose to speak up, you won't be alone in that, in the universe, because <laughs> it's such a trap that people get into. And then lastly, if you a bystander, if you have a friend that is going through dealing with things, it's really, really important to do your research. There's so many resources out there to look at how you can be an effective ally and supporter. So go and explore that. And don't push your friend into doing anything they don't want to, but definitely be prepared to listen. The power of listening and just saying you care is enormous. So those are my three main points that I would just like to share. And thank you for asking. And those were amazing. Thank you. One, thank you for coming on. Like it, it is really cool to have, like like you said, we were talking cross oceans that's cool in itself two thank you for writing this article because it was amazing which i will link it in the bio and then three just what is it our consent is read i break the cycle campaign yeah so it's literally a step-by-step guide on how to be a good bystander awesome yes i will definitely link that and put it on my socials but yes just thank you thank you thank you (laughs) all right i'll send you the link now to the consent break the cycle campaign perfect like a slide and you can just slide along and see it but we've we posted it on our instagram consent is rad and it's had eight thousand likes in the first two days so clearly people are moved by it and right. um, that's not paying for advertising either that's just literally word of mouth and people have translated it into spanish and they're going to translate it into french and japanese like oh, it's that's digital. Cool. yeah <laughs> okay cool. thank you thank you um so yeah bye have a nice night Yes, you have a nice morning. Thank you. And just like that, we are done with another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. I hope you unlearned something. And I hope this fosters a conversation 
with anyone in your life about this topic, about rape culture in general, because it's so important to talk about it. My links will be in the description. Her links will be in the description. Consent is Rad will be in the description. The trailer for this will be in the description. All the good stuff will be in the description. I hope you come back in two weeks for another awesome episode. It's going to be about Latin American dancing. You'll want to stick around. Have a great week. Have a great week. Have a great week.